What a great song to sing before we hear from God's word. A desperate plea for him to break the bread, to bless it to our souls. And this morning we're going to open once more to Hebrews chapter 5. Russian author Leo Tolstoy's short work, The Death of Ivan Illich, is the tale of a man who is confronted with the meaningless of his life pursuits as he struggles with a, what seemed at first, minor injury that ends up turning into a painful, drawn-out death. Resourceful, clever, and well-bred, Ivan up to that point was always able to avoid any kind of crisis, whether in his workplace or in his marriage, his finances, relationships. That is until death showed up knocking at his doorstep. He'd always been able to maintain a level of comfort and ease that had shielded him from having to wrestle with life questions like these. Why do I exist? What is my purpose? Does any of my life matter? What will happen when I die? The death of Ivan Illich is a crisis moment for anyone who picks up the tale and reads it. George Gabion explains, Tolstoy believed that facing a crisis was necessary, even desirable, if a person was to arrive at a genuine understanding of what he or she wanted to achieve in life. Men have a need to confront extreme situations in order to discover what is truly important and what is not. In many ways, Palm Sunday was just such a crisis moment for the city of Jerusalem. The hundreds of years of waiting for their Messiah to arrive were over. And the pleasantries of the false religion that had come to characterize the religious leaders and all the people who lived in Jerusalem was finally called to account when Jesus came riding through the city gates on a humble donkey. It was the moment of truth. As we've read this morning in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' triumphant parade through the streets of Jerusalem ends at the doors of the temple. No more masks, no more falsity, no more pretending. The crisis has come to your doorstep, and now you must decide. Matthew's gospel tells us that in the 21st chapter, when Jesus arrived, the entire city was shaken to the core with this question. Who then is this? The people respond, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The city of Jerusalem had asked the question. The answer had been given, and now was the moment of decision. Are you with me, or are you against me? 
We as human beings need these kinds of crisis moments. Moments when our lives are put into stark terms where we're presented with a binary choice where the waiting and the putting off and the putting off and the putting off and the procrastinating is over and we're forced just to decide. It's in these crises that we discover whether what we say matters to us actually does matter to us. We have such a crisis before us today in Hebrews chapter 5. If you haven't already turned there, let's turn there together. We've been journeying through the book of Hebrews together this spring. And this week's passage puts it as plainly as it gets. And this is the point. Folks, it's time to grow up. It's way past time to grow up. So let's stand together as we receive God's word from Hebrews chapter 5. And we're going to begin in verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern, distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, 
obtain the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves in all, in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God, desiring to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would build up your church. I pray that no corrupting talk would come from my mouth, but only what builds up and gives grace to the hearer. Be with us now by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is a hard word to hear, but a necessary word for each of us to hear this morning from Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. Three things you need to hear today. Number one, you need to grow up. You need to grow up. The author of Hebrews hits the pause button in verse 10 in the middle of a sermon in order to give us a little spanking. Sometimes I have to do this with my algebra students. You know, you just got to pause. You can tell they're not paying attention. They're not listening. And you got to stop mid-lesson and you got to say to them, stop being so lazy. Stop letting yourself off the hook. Stop being satisfied with mediocrity. You have to try hard things in order to be able to do hard things. Quit giving yourself a pass. We're headed, the author of Hebrews says, into some complex stuff. It's going to take a little thinking and engagement and listening. But the problem is that not that I need to dumb this down for you. The problem is you need to grow up. Look again at verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You hear that word there? Ought. You know what that means? That means you have an obligation. Ought is what you owe. Ought is a debt that you need to pay. So the, the disappointment in the author of Hebrews, his disappointment is, is in this expectation. It arises from this expectation that every believer is on the pathway from being a learner to a teacher. But with his listeners, something has happened because they, according to his timetable, they ought to be there already. Question for those of us who have been a believer for, let's say, longer than five years. Probably a lot of us in here. Have you ever taught the basics of the gospel to someone else? And if not, why not? Certainly, you know the basics of the gospel. I mean, it only takes four years to get a high school diploma, 
Eight years will give you a high school diploma and a college diploma. But you're telling me that after 10, 15, 20 years of being a Christian, you still need to be taught the ABCs of the faith. By this point, 20, 25, 30 years, you ought to have a PhD in Christianity. In fact, you ought to be the one up here preaching, not me. You should be able to explain deep matters of theology, the ins and the outs of how to put the Christian faith into practice. Instead, some of us who are 15, 20, 30-year veterans of the Christian faith are actually the worst offenders when it comes to heretical belief and heterodox living and why we do not do what we ought. We need to grow up. comes down to a matter of laziness. Verse 11 says that you have become dull of hearing. Literally, it says you have become lazy listeners. Lazy listeners. It's not a lack of ability. It's a lack of effort. In contrast to our lazy ears, verse 14 describes what a mature believer looks like. Solitude is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So baby Christians have lazy ears. Mature Christians have trained their ears through constant practice. The word here is the same word that you would use for going to the gym. Constantly working out, working those ears out trying to discern the truth from the lie, the good from the evil. A baby sits in his high chair and waits for everyone else to bring him his banana or his oatmeal or his milk cup and to wipe his face and to change his diaper. <laughs> we have one of those. I've had, a, I've had a few in my house. I know what babies are like. Is that you? Is that the kind of Christian you want to be forever? When are you going to start training? When are you going to start working out your own faith with fear and trembling? When are you going to take ownership of your discipleship? This is my responsibility, my job, my obligation, my privilege to be a follower of Jesus. You and I need to grow up. And apparently, the author of Hebrews expects this to happen in a timely manner. That's what's so frustrating to him. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. He's speaking to older Christians. These are people he fully expects along a timely manner you ought to be teaching. And so you and I ought to be growing in a timely manner. At some point, biblical ignorance is shameful for the believer. You don't know what priesthood is and you've been a Christian for how long? You can't name three disciples and you've been attending church for how many years? You're still struggling to grasp the basics of the gospel and you've been a Christian for how long? 
there comes a time when babiness is unbecoming of the believer. A perfectly healthy 20-year-old who can't walk, still drinks milk from a bottle, and wears a diaper is unsightly. It's unbecoming. And yet how many of our church pews are filled with those kinds of Christians? Verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the work of righteousness, the word of righteousness, since he is a child. You hear this word repeated in verses 12 of chapter 5, verse 1 of chapter 6, and verse 6 of chapter 6. It's a word of frustration, the word again, again, again. Parents, you know the exasperation sometimes that can arise when you you have to say this word, right? Uh, Really, again, we're going to have this talk again. You need me to teach you this again? Oh, you went and made that same mistake again, right? By this time, I ought to be moving on to teaching other people the ABCs, but you need me to neglect them so that I can teach it to you again. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. That's it. You need to grow up. Grow up. Mature. There is no polite way to put it. We need to start putting faith into practice. We need to stop being lethargic sermon listeners, lazy Bible readers, baby Christians. We need to mature. We need to train. Exercise some discernment. And grow. We can't keep drinking milk forever. When are you and I going to move on to solid food? Let's go on to maturity. You need to grow. Well, as we enter chapter 6, we're confronted with this stark contrast that there really is no gray area there's no middle ground either you're growing in maturity or you're not and if you aren't the author of Hebrews says that should be a fearful prospect for you secondly this morning we're confronted with this you need to be honest You need to be honest. Chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Let's just pause there for a minute. That, That opening statement, it is impossible. Whenever the Bible says something like that, our ears should perk up. Because the angel Gabriel told Mary nothing is impossible with God. So when the Bible says it is impossible, we're talking about something that even God can't do. Impossible. Well, what is it that's impossible? Verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That's what's impossible. It is impossible to restore a Christian who has fallen away. 
And that's what he's saying. So you need to be honest this morning because every Christian in this room is either one of two things. Either you are a verse one kind of Christian or you are a verse six kind of Christian. Either you are maturing or you are falling away. Those are the only two options. And this is bad news for some. If you look at your life and you say, I'm not maturing, then there is only one other option. You must be falling away. This is also good news for some. If you look at your life and you say, well, I'm not falling away. Well, the truth is you must be maturing whether you realize it or not. There is no third option. The author of Hebrews says, once you become a believer, there's no turning back. If salvation doesn't work the first time, <laughs> there is no plan B. If Jesus dying on the cross doesn't rescue you forever, then there is no second option. So, if you are claiming that all of these things have happened to you at one point in your life, that you were enlightened, that you tasted the heavenly gift, you shared in the Holy Spirit, there was a time in the past when you knew the goodness of God's word, but now you're walking in open, unrepentant sin. You haven't opened your Bible in 10 years. You haven't been to church in 11. But yeah, I'm a Christian. The author of Hebrews says, I'm sorry, you need to be honest. There are no Christians like that. What you are describing is a non-Christian. This is the problem with so many people who live in this very town, people who live in America, who grow up in a, a churched culture, clinging to some past spiritual experience in their lives, claiming to be a Christian, claiming to be a born-again believer, but living like the rest of the world every day with no intention of changing. The author of Hebrews says, if, if that's the case, if that's what your life looks like, and you're still claiming to be a Christian, well then what hope is there for you? We can't crucify Jesus all over again to save you out of that kind of a life. God doesn't have a second son that he can send to die to, to rescue you out of this bondage. There's no way for you to be born again again. If you are a Christian and you've fallen away, then there's nothing left for you. And the thing is, is that's not really true. And the problem is that you don't want to be honest. You're not a believer. That's the truth that you are trying to avoid. But until you're willing to humble yourself and admit that one truth that you're trying to be false about, the author of Hebrews says there is no hope for you. It's easy to rededicate your life whenever you feel like showing back up to church. It's hard to show up and say, I'm sorry, I never took the cross seriously. I never really followed Jesus. I was a faker, a poser, and now I'm ready to be honest. 
wasn't a Christian before. But I'm ready to be today. You don't need to rededicate your life for the 5th, 6th, 70th time. You just need to be honest. There is no Christian who is constantly falling away, constantly running from the Lord, constantly ignoring the voice of the shepherd, refusing to heed the warning of his brothers and sisters. Either the death and resurrection of Jesus has redirected the course of your life forever, or it hasn't. Either you have been born again or you haven't. This whole idea of being a Christian whenever it's convenient or whenever it feels like it. Being a Christian stuck in some kind of rededication mode is not biblical. Either you're maturing because you are a believer or you're falling away because you're not. Verse 7 and 8 says either you're bearing fruit or you're bearing thorns. Either you're blessed or you're cursed. And you need to be completely honest with yourself this morning. Which one are you? Two things the author of Hebrews shows us this morning. You need to grow up. And you need to be honest. But there is one more. So, if for the first 20 minutes of this sermon you've been beating yourself up and taking that little knife and digging it into your heart and saying, that's me, that's me, I'm the baby Christian, I'm the one that needs to grow up, I'm the one who sins and keeps falling and falling over and over again and can't seem to find the way, that's me, I'm that awful Christian. That's why, thirdly, you need to be encouraged. You need to be encouraged. Verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, your case, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. You need to be encouraged today, brothers and sisters, by other brothers and sisters. You need people in your life who from the outside looking in can say these kinds of things to you when you feel discouraged and depressed and anxious. Who can say things like verse 10, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So when you're struggling, when your faith feels weak, when you have fallen into temptation a couple of times, when you feel downtrodden, convicted, depressed, you need brothers, you need sisters, you need a church that will wrap its arms around you and say, in your case, beloved, we are sure of better things. I know what your life feels and looks like right now. But we believe Better things are in store for you. Things belonging to salvation. You need to be encouraged by brothers and sisters. Beloved, he says, everything that I have to say to you this morning is spoken from a heart of love for you. For your salvation, not for your destruction, for your encouragement to prevent you, to warn you from falling away. 
so that this never happens. To weaken the strength of the temptation, to make you alert, to reawaken diligence in you, to inspire you if you're feeling a little bit lazy about your faith. We need that. We need to be encouraged. We need to remind one another of how God works. He sees what you're doing. He knows the love that's in your heart, the way that you've been faithfully serving his church. And on the last day, he will reward you with eternal salvation. Keep going. Don't give up. You need to be encouraged by brothers and sisters. You need to be encouraged by the saints. That's what verse 12 picks up with. He says we're to be encourage one another to imitate the faith and the patience of those who have gone before us. Verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish. Don't be lazy. No. Abandon that. Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And now he's going to give us one. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you, and I will multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. <coughs> you need to be encouraged by the saints. Read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament. Read Christian biographies. Read about the lives of Christians like Adoniram Judson, who was imprisoned for a year and a half for preaching the gospel in Burma. He was hung by his feet every night so that he couldn't escape. Beaten. Starved. And for what? For eight years he had been preaching the gospel and less than ten people had been saved. And while he was imprisoned, his pregnant wife worked herself literally to death trying to transport food and care for him. She died and then the child also died. After his release, Judson went back to his home, ripped up all the commendation letters from the mission board, went out into a tiger-infested jungle, buried his wife, and dug his own grave next to it and sat there. He said, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. Do you believe that Christians can sink to that kind of level? From the depths of that kind of despair, the Lord raised Adoniram Judson back up. He did not let him fall away. Today, 3,700 Burmese congregations can trace their origins back to his ministry. We need to be encouraged by these kind of saints. Look at the life of Abraham. He waited for 20 plus years for God to keep his promise. And he was patient. And you know, his patience was not perfect. <laughs> you go back and read that story. He was patient, I guess, most of the time. But we read about a lot of his shortcomings in the, in the book of Genesis. He was faithful. But his faith was not perfect either. At times, he tried to take matters into his own hands. But in the end, he discovered that God is a God who keeps his promises. When God swears, he follows through. Not a good word of God will ever fall to the ground unfulfilled. And so we can look at the examples of how God has acted on behalf of the saints and be encouraged 
to imitate their faith, their patience. We need to be encouraged not just by one another, but by the saints of old. Lastly, we need to be encouraged by God himself. Look at verse 16. For people swear by someone something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Did you hear it there? It said that God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise. Who is that? To us. God desired to convince us even more that he is not going to change, that his character is sure, and that his purpose is the same today as it has been since before the dawn of creation. And he went out of his way because it was his desire to convince and encourage us. Not only to promise, but to swear by himself and his nature that he was going to keep it. He wanted us to have something firm to stand on. He wanted you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that his promise for you and purpose are eternally secure. And so, even though it was entirely superfluous, totally unnecessary, God, in addition to promising you, swore he was going to keep that promise. And why? Verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible, there's that word again, impossible for God to lie, we have, who have fled for refuge might have what? Strong encouragement. Strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God knows that you and I need his encouragement. An amazing thing that the eternal God would stoop to encouraging us along our feeble way. That's what his promises are for. That's what his oaths are for. They are a strong encouragement for you to hold on. Hold on to that hope. Don't let go. But beloved, be encouraged by this. Your salvation has nothing to do with your ability and how tightly you can hold on to God, but to how tightly he is holding on to you. The author of Hebrews says that you, believer, have been tethered to Jesus Christ like a ship to its anchor. Verse 19. We have this, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What's he talking about there? Jesus. <laughs> Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You've already read about it this morning. On Palm Sunday, Jesus marched straight into the earthly temple in Jerusalem. He cast out all the robbers and the thieves who were there to take advantage of the poor, the sinners, the needy. And Matthew tells us he went into the house of God and he sat down 
and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So now, brothers and sisters, having endured the cross, having emerged victorious from the grave, having ascended into heaven and entered triumphantly into the heavenly temple, can we expect Jesus to do any less than what he did on Palm Sunday? Blind, the lame, lepers, the unclean, sinners, poor, needy, sick, dying, whoever you are this morning, God has given us a great encouragement. Let us come to Jesus, our great high priest, and he will heal us. Our souls have been attached to Jesus by an unbreakable change. Whatever, whatever wave of discouragement or anxiety or temptation may have you jostled about, whatever storm may have come into your life, do not despair. Your anchor holds within the veil. Jesus Christ, the one who has died and who has entered into the heavenly places with the offering of his own blood for you, that Jesus, he's reeling you in right now. <laughs> link by link, day by day, on an unbreakable chain, drawn irresistibly, irrevocably toward the eternal presence of the God who made you, who sent Jesus so that he might make the way, the forerunner. And we're running in his treads. We know that the footprints of Jesus lead back to the presence of God. And so may we receive this encouragement in the person of Jesus himself from God. Well, the author of Hebrews paused this morning to give us a little spanking. I needed it. I'm guessing a lot of us did. You and I need to know we've got to grow up. We need to be honest with ourselves. But he also pauses to heal. You need to be encouraged by brothers and sisters, by the saints of old, and by God himself. I hope, if you were here last week, that uh, you recognize that verse 20 sounded pretty familiar. Well, that's because it is. It's the exact same thing he said in verse 10 of chapter 5 before he broke off to give us this little discipline. He's going to pick right back up where he left off. And brothers and sisters, if you want to grow up, this is what growing up looks like. Wherever you find yourself today, you need to pick right back up where you left off. Well, perhaps you realize this morning, after being honest, that you have never believed. This is the day to receive the encouragement of God and trust his eternal promises and to believe that Jesus Christ has been sent has died, has been raised, and has gone back to heaven so that you might have an anchor for your soul. Will you repent and believe? Will you trust in him and be baptized? Will you begin to grow in your faith? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that my brothers and sisters would be greatly encouraged by what they have heard this morning, not destroyed, not torn down, not corrupted, 
Lord Jesus, may our souls put their trust in you. Draw us nearer, Lord, day by day. Help us to grow and mature as we go along the way. God, we trust in you and your unbreakable promises because they are founded on your unchangeable nature. We thank you, God, that you're a merciful and forgiving God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.